David Mayer here. This is for the record program number 1290. Interview number 27 with Jim Jamiel and Lisa Peace about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on February 10th of the year 2023. And once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airways not only Jim Jamiel, author of Destiny Betrayed, and JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, but also selected by Oliver Stone to write the screenplay for JFK Revisited, and Lisa Peets, author of A Lot to Big to Fail about the assassination of Robert Kennedy that we will cover in future programs. Also, a major participant in JFK Revisited. Lisa, Jim, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's plunge right in. Actually, there's a nice aquatic metaphor. Uh, President Nasser of Egypt and the Suez Canal. Uh, the, so the, the U.S. had promised Nasser financing for the Aswan Dam. And, uh, then that, uh, went south. Tell us about that and what happened with regard to Nasser and, uh, the Suez Canal. So, Lisa actually knows a lot about that. Yeah, yeah. I've actually studied this a little bit. Yeah, Nasser, uh, in response, because once he realized the U.S. was going to renege on its agreement, he decided to nationalize the Suez Canal. And the Suez Canal at that point was the major oil pipeline for the entire world. It's like any oil that was coming was usually coming from the Middle East, was coming by boat, ship rather, and it had to ship through the Suez Canal to reach Europe or the Western world, or else it had to go way down around the tip of Africa, which was, you know, dangerous and extremely long voyage. So it's a, it was one of the key choke points in the world. In fact, the shipping of oil was so important. The CIA ran a whole operation, you know, to con- to keep uh, uh, Onassis, you know, who married Jackie Kennedy after JFK was assassinated. They ran an operation against Onassis to prohibit him from getting a, a shipping monopoly there. So anyway, this is the 1950s and um, – you know, so Nasser is, he's also upset because Israel keeps kind of making these kind of terrorist incursions on Egypt at the time. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to shut this down. I'm going to nationalize it. You're going to pay me a fine, you know, every time you want to use the canal. And of course, everybody goes, well, that's not acceptable, you know, because up till then it had kind of been considered international property, even though it really was in Egypt. Uh, so he does this and then Israel and France and England come up with a plot and they talk to Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles and they get their kind of covert approval for this. And the plot was this. Israel was going to attack Egypt and then as an excuse to put down the Israeli attack, the French and the British were going to send in forces and take over the canal to keep it from falling to the Israelis and to protect Egypt. Does this sound like the Indonesian coup we were talking about in the last episode or the last hour? Um, it is. It's the same kind of false flag thing. So they were all in cahoots together about this. So Israel does their part. They go ahead and attack. But then Eisenhower, who was not in the loop on this, he goes, you know, to – the French and the British, he goes, oh, my gosh, let's not start World War Three here. You know, it's like Israel needs to back down, but you're not coming into Africa. No way. 
And, and so it ended up being kind of a standoff and Nasser, you know, backed down a little bit and, you know, relinquished some of the control and it became, um, you know, ships could pass through it again. But what, what was so interesting about that to me is how Alan Dulles and, and his brother had convinced these other countries that Eisenhower would fall in line on this. And they had never thought to even run it by Eisenhower. And Eisenhower, when he learns of the plot, he's like, no way are we going to get involved in that. So it's yet another example of the CIA and the State Department acting independently of the president. Uh, yeah. So that See, kind of thing happens more than we understand, I think. <laughs> as, as, as a direct result of this was that Nasser became an icon in the Middle East because he was perceived as standing up, you know, to England, France, and Israel, you know, over this dispute. And he becomes a, you know, a, fig, a, 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 a great figurehead for Arab nationalism and Arab and because I what Nasser really wanted was a pan Arab movement, okay. Mm-hmm. And and what he one of his and one of the reasons England hated his guts, okay, <laughs> is because he thought the petroleum underneath all that sand in the Middle East belonged to all the Arabs. Okay. And the fact is that England liked the relationship they had with Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia gave them oil at very cheap rates. Okay. That wouldn't have happened if, 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 if Nasser would have succeeded with his, with his pan Arab union. And this is why Anthony Eden, who was part of this thing, he, he, you, all you had to do was say Nasser's name and he went spastic. Okay. <laughs> You know, that, that's how much he hated the guy, you know. But well, he well, tried to kill him. I mean, the, yes, the British yes. had a plot to kill Nasser and, right. and so frankly did the CIA. They, they came up with a plot that it was going to involve poison chocolates. Right. You know, and it, interestingly enough, a, a man who worked for the CIA and talked to the church committee, he claimed he shot down Dag Hammersgold's plane, but he says, I went to confession after Nasser and the, the, you know, official story is Nasser died of a heart attack. So what is he saying? Except the CIA had a gun that could induce a heart attack at a distance. So, you know, who who knows? Maybe he did kill Nasser. And and Dave, I'm I'm Dave. You're you're aware of the Levon affair, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. The the, the Levon affair is when the Israelis sent uh, people who they they tried to say were really Arabs into Egypt. To do these terrorist acts, okay, against the, uh, the, the Nasser government, okay, and then, and then try and bring down the Nasser government through this series of terrorist acts, okay, you know, and, and this is what I'm trying to say is this is, people don't understand. If you weren't around back then, you know, uh, you, they don't understand what an, a magnetic, charismatic figure that Nasser was in the Middle East, you know. And Nasser was secular. He wasn't an Islamic fundamentalist. And in fact, the CIA started funding the Muslim Brotherhood, a radical right-wing, you know, fanatic terrorist organization, as, you know, to try and take down Nasser. Right. And as a buffer against any further movement left by Egypt, 
which at that time was friendly with the Soviets, but not in their camp. Again, it's like if, if he couldn't get the money from us, he would get the money from the Soviets, but he didn't want to be tied to either of them. But it's like a lot of the like Al Qaeda and stuff, a lot of that started back in this time with the CIA funding these horrific right wing terrorists to prevent the Soviets from gaining any traction there and, you know, to try and smear Nasser's legacy. What's uh, incredible is when Nasser died, there was like 6 million people turned into the streets to honor his death. I mean, it was as big as JFK in Egypt, you know, it was just incredible. See, and this is why Kennedy liked Nasser. Because he, he wanted he to, to, to make a understanding with Nasser because Nasser was secularist. He was not an Islamic fundamentalist. Okay. And he, he wanted progress for his people. And so Kennedy tried to latch on to Nasser as being a model for the rest of the way the Middle East should be. Okay. And, 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 and this is, they exchanged something like 90 letters or something. And, and when, when Kennedy died, Nasser went into a period of depression and he ordered that Kennedy's funeral be shown four times on Egyptian national television. Uh, the, the entire Middle East situation is one that, that is, is extremely complex. And sadly, we don't have the time really to go into that past the point because the clock is moving along. Uh, the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Uh, Lisa, you have discussed the huge difference between the way they investigated Oswald, or quote Oswald, unquote, in New Orleans. Set that forth for us if you would. <laughs> right, right. I, I joked that there was no Columbo on the Warren Commission because uh, Columbo is that TV character who, who always gets his guy and just keeps asking questions and wearing them down. And the Warren Commission is like, give us any lie that we can hang a hat on and we'll take it. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, they had a very shallow interest in what happened in Mexico city, David Slauson, who was very close to CIA and I'm pretty sure he was playing tennis with Alan Dulles at the time. Uh, you know, he went down to Mexico city and made some, you know, routine inquiries and whatever the CIA gave them, they just embraced it and didn't question it at all. Now, the House Select Committee, of course, came on the heels of the Watergate investigation, which found that the CIA had some involvement there. And then the House Committee and, you know, the Pike Committee and the Church Committee and the Rockefeller Commission. So by the time you got to the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1977, these people were not nearly as naive as the Warren Commission members were. And I, I do think some of the Warren Commission members were naive. I think others were not naive and didn't mind covering things up. Others didn't want to cover things up, but were afraid, wow, if they can take out the president, what could they do to me? And so just quietly went along. Uh But, yeah, the HSCA, you know, they sent these teams to New Orleans and down to Mexico City. And Dan Hardway and Eddie Lopez wrote this incredible report of all the goings on in Mexico City and basically came to the conclusion that it's really difficult to say that Oswald was at either embassy there 
due to the fact that the Soviet one was closed <laughs> and not really there and all the conversations, how could they have transpired? No one was at the embassy at that time. It was like that was all fictionalized. That's something John Newman really dug into. And then at the Cuban embassy where Oswald was also supposed to have gone, the main consul there, Zubio Askew, uh, when he talked about it, he's like, well, the guy I saw was blonde and short-haired. He wasn't the guy killed by Jack Ruby in Dallas, but he did say his name was Lee Oswald. So clearly Oswald was being impersonated there. And I found this file from 1965 after the Warren Commission and way before the House Select Committee. And frankly, at a time where there really wasn't much talk of conspiracy in the media, and it's from Angleton's group, and they're talking amongst themselves, and they're saying, hey, Azubio Askew is coming through D.C. Why don't we take him out, get him drunk, and have him talk about Oswald? And the implication, as I read these exchanges, I'm like, oh, my God, they want him to retract his story, and they're going to get him drunk and try and get him to retract it when his you know, defenses are weakened. And I, I don't think they ever did take him out for drinks, you know, because I never heard of a retraction of that. But I thought that was interesting that the CIA and Angleton especially knew that was a weak link and they wanted to shore it up well in advance of any future investigation. But they didn't follow through and it did show up in the HSCA as a very problematic area. In his book, in the portrait of the artist as a young man, James Joyce wrote of the ineluctable modality of the visible. There is a picture of, quote, Oswald, unquote, <laughs> in Mexico City that is neither short nor blonde nor Oswald. It's a fairly <laughs> stocky looking uh, guy, maybe in his early middle age with a crew cut, actually looks a little bit like, uh, Dallas policeman Marion Baker, but it, it sure as Bleepenhell isn't Oswald. <laughs> and anyone who is inclined to take the official version at face value need only look at that picture and it is not Lee Harvey Oswald. That's an excellent point. And the, the commission members had to know there was no way that was Oswald. But they, they kind of let it go into the record and like, well, see, I thought it was Oswald. <laughs> it's like, it was clearly not. No, the, actually the CIA knew who it was. Yeah. It was, it, it, it was, a, it was a Russian, uh, KGB agent under diplomatic cover. Hmm. Okay. You know, but, but they, they wanted to sh- put that in because they didn't have anything to show. In other words, there was no picture of Oswald. And, right. suppo- and the funny thing was, supposedly there was. And Ann Goodpaster had testified to that. And and um, oh, I can't think of the other guy's name. But some credible, well-respected CIA officers said there really was a picture of Oswald. And so I think this photo was substituted like, oh, here's the picture. But oops, it's not Oswald. Because there were in the records reference to an actual picture of Oswald, but they also described it as like a three quarter shot from behind. So it's like his head was turned as if he knew where the cameras were and was avoiding it. Um, so it's interesting. There may actually have been some picture of Oswald at some point. Um, or, or all of that was BS because you just never know with the CIA. No, see, we, we actually have now, they actually declassified the inventory check. Yeah. If you, can, if you can believe that. And it says negative, no picture. Okay. So, so the, the, this is highly unlikely that they, and, and when that you they look ever at had it, one. Okay. when you look at it, 
this is what makes it a, such a serious problem because you had these multi-bank of cameras outside the Cuban consulate. It was a little bit smaller outside the Russian consulate. It's almost impossible to believe that every single one of those cameras failed, okay, to pick up a picture of Oswald, especially when one of the cameras outside the Cuban consulate was what they called the pulse action camera. When when the door opened, when that means the air pressure changed, mm-hmm. it, it would take a picture, okay, you know. And Jim, so, how do we know that inventory is accurate? Well, it's it, it's from the CIA on the day of the assassination, or so they've told us, right? <laughs> so, I, I I just I never take any document at face value. I I always ask that. Well, question. I well yeah. well there, there there comes a point, Lisa, where you have to believe something. <laughs> okay, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. So yeah. what what the House Select Committee did, and this is what is such a shame. The Lopez Hardway report was a giant leap forward in our understanding of Oswald. And they did not declassify it until 1995. If it wasn't for Oliver Stone and his film, we might have never seen the Lopez report. Yeah. Okay. Uh, very quickly, uh, we've spoken about uh, James Jesus Angleton. Uh, for decades, the CIA's counterintelligence chief, we have spoken about the conflict between him and William Colby, CIA director at that point in time. We've also spoken about how Angleton's, quote, defector, unquote, program aroused the interest of Otto Otepka to Otepka's eventual uh, professional uh, demise. Uh, Angleton and Jim Garrison. Angleton hmm. began investigating uh, not only who Jim Garrison was investigating, but also the jury members. Uh, Jim and Lisa, I wonder if you would encapsulate that for us. And Jim, in that context, something we've spoken about both in these interviews and in the interviews about Destiny Betrayed, uh, Ray Wilka, who was he? What did he have to say about the Garrison's investigation of Clay Shaw? You talk about Ray Roca? Yeah. Yeah. Roca, yeah. Ray yeah. Roca was in on the very first meeting of what's called the Garrison Group, which is what Richard Helms ordered to go into operations against Garrison. At the very first meeting, which I believe was in September of 1967, he said, if things continue as they are, Clay Shaw will be convicted. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's how worried they were about Jim Garrison. So they put together what what was called the Garrison Group. And we have some of the data from the Garrison Group, but it stops relatively shortly after, in about November. But they were running operations against Jim Garrison. There's no question about that today. They would interfere with the judicial process. For instance, they talked to judges talking them out of serving subpoenas, you know, on, on for example, Alan Dulles, all right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And they uh, they were in bed with so many journalists, it was actually kind of sickening, you know, when, when you start adding it up, you know. And they even had reporters on the scene moved out. There were a couple of guys who were actually pretty good at the New Orleans uh, state's item. Well, they had them taken off 
the garrison thing, and the guy said, I ended up watching high school football games. Okay. You know, and so. And then they sent in James Phelan, who was a friend of right. Robert Mayhew, who the CIA had hired to, you know, kill Castro. And, and meanwhile, Angleton is literally running background checks on the jurors. I found a document where they had like a breakdown of every juror and what they knew about them. And I'm like, what is the point of this unless they're contemplating jury tampering? There's mm. no other explanation for that. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's shocking. And the HSCA also found out that not less than 10 operatives had infiltrated Garrison's investigation. They were working on his staff and that's just incredible. So, you know, people love to point to Garrison and say, oh, he failed. Oh, he was over the top. Oh, this, oh, that. It's like, well, we don't really know what he really had because a lot of his files were stolen right out from under him. Yes. <clears throat> yes. And, and then Harry Comet burned a bunch of them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. See, and this is a very serious problem that we've had in reconstructing the Garrison investigation is that so many of the files from his inquiry were either lost, stolen, or incinerated. Okay. It's, it, and, and so I, I believe, you know, this is not a scientific fact, but I believe what we have is maybe 40% of what Garrison's files actually consisted of. Cause like you said, once Harry Connick got into office, he told certain assistants, take this down to the incinerator and burn it. Okay. Then there was another batch of files that Garrison had left with his friend, Steve Bordelon, and that was stolen. But then right during the investigation, people like a plant, like Lisa mentioned, there were these numerous agents who went in, you know, Bill Boxley was one of them, you know, and he would, you know, literally walk off, you know, with a, with a uh, suitcase full of files, all right? So, you know, it's very, very unfortunate what you know what happened i don't think we're ever i really believe this i don't think we're ever going to understand what jim garrison actually really had uh, moving again that ray wilcock was james pieces angleton's assistant and that he said in no uncertain terms that uh jim garrison would get a conviction of clay shot uh, lisa in an earlier interview with david talbot he mentioned a document that you had given him about Alan Bellis going to Camp Perry on the weekend of JFK's assassination. Uh, tell us about that document. And also, uh, Camp Perry is not a household word, so perhaps you should uh, fill the audience in on what that is. Right, right. And it comes right on the heel of evidence destruction, doesn't it? Camp Perry is the CIA's training facility in the backwoods of Virginia, and it's known colloquially as the farm. And so I knew David was working on a book about Alan Dulles, and at around that time, John Armstrong, a researcher who wrote a book, Harvey and Lee, uh, you know, documenting kind of parallel Oswald stories, he alerted me and he said, Lisa, did you know Alan Dulles's papers are online at the Princeton Library? I'm like, no, let me go check. And I just dove in head first and read a bunch of letters and stuff. And then I found his calendar. And so, of course, what month did I want to look at first? Well, November 63. And at that time, it was online and I could go browse it. And, uh, you know, there, it's funny because 
I, I think I started in October and Alan Dulles had made a visit to Dallas in October of 1963 and then joked about it later. Wait till the conspiracists find out I was in Dallas, you know, in, uh, you know, October of 63. But when I got to, you know, November 22nd, there's like a five day entry with a, one line through it that says the farm. Alan Dulles was not a farmer. <laughs> he had zero interest in agriculture. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it would have made perfect sense if he was involved, as a lot of evidence suggests, in the assassination plotting. He would have known, he would have wanted to know what the media was saying, where did the leaks might be coming from, what needed to be covered up. And so it makes perfect sense he went there. So I was stunned by this. And because David had a book coming out, I didn't want to preempt it. I thought this is great for David's book. So I didn't post that part online. I did, however, post the earlier page uh, from October where he was in Dallas on Twitter. And that file still exists on Twitter. So that's proof that that calendar actually existed and was there on the Princeton site because there's a link to it, which, of course, doesn't work now. Um, but I didn't know there was any problem with that until maybe a year or two after uh, uh, David Talbot's book came out. And David said, you know, Lisa, people are saying that calendar doesn't exist. And of course, he had seen the page and I'd seen the page and his researcher had seen the page. And I, I think I even showed it to Jim DiEugenio. And uh, it's, you know, it, it's like, well, we all saw it. It's like that page did exist. And so I wrote Princeton. I'm like, well, you know, I I read this. I know you used to have it. Is it somewhere else on your site? You know, what happened to it? And they wrote back and said, oh, we never had Alan Dulles's, you know, calendar. And I'm like, well, you did, because here's a page from it. And here's a link to where the file used to be. And uh, and then they went silent and they wouldn't respond further. And I, you know, this is what the CIA does when they do get exposed. They just disappear the evidence. And then they claim you're the wild, crazy conspiracy theorist because that evidence doesn't exist anymore. It's a terrible game to them. And it's not a game to me. It's it's very serious. What happened to our country and our planet because John Candy was killed is, is absolutely serious. I like to laugh and joke you need a certain gallows humor to pursue the information in this field. It's one of the things I've always liked about Jim. He could find the humor in these situations, <laughs> you know, but uh it's 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 very dark. And the fact that they can just destroy a document that's sitting in Princeton remotely, you know, remove it from the server like it never existed is very disturbing. And it reminds me, by the way, of how the CI cracked into the Senate server and removed the torture report off the servers. And Diane Feinstein, who has always been a CI supporter and backer, you know, to a fault, actually called them out on it. I was so you know, impressed that she had the guts to do that. And it, it turned out that there was a young guy in her office who basically held her feet to the fire because he'd been the one going through the torture report. And he was really pissed about it. And she knew that he would tell on her if she didn't. So, and that's what, there's a movie about that. It's called The Report. I, I definitely recommend people check it out. It's on Amazon and, you know, all the usual places. Um, but that's, that's what they do. They, they cover up, they lie, and then they destroy the evidence. And Jim, that's why I mentioned that with that file, because they've also been known to plant files that aren't true. Um, I don't know if you've seen the explanation of the QK and Chant thing. Both E. Howard Hunt, Clay Shaw, 
and Robert Mayhew's son, Peter Mayhew, all shared clearance for something called Project QK Enchant. And the document says, we're giving them covert security approval for Project QK Enchant. But the CIA's version of this, they told the, the ARB when they asked them, what is that? They said, well, that's a project to provide covert security approvals. And so if you put that in context, then they're saying we're providing them covert security approval to provide covert security approval. I mean, their explanation makes no sense. And I think the CIA just lied to the ARB. But other researchers are now like, oh, that's all it is. It's like, what? That doesn't even make sense. (laughs) Why are you falling for this? So we have to be careful when documents come out that the documents themselves are legitimate. In fact, I think it was Colby. One of the CI directors, and it might have been Colby, but it might have been one of the later ones, but he said, memorandums for the record are often a big lie. And I think that's true, and we should bear that in mind. You know, a document is only valid if it's supported by other evidence. Well, with regard to the JFK assassination, one of the cliches that is often mustered to decry any notion of a conspiracy behind JFK's assassination, and that is that the, quote, liberal, unquote, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Earl Warren, who headed, of course, the Warren Commission, which bears his name, would never have covered up the assassination of JFK. Uh, the Warren Court, of course, was very liberal, It was a focal point of vehement criticism by the John Birch Society and the right for that reason. And the term that I summoned earlier in our discussions, uh, the term networking that I brought up in our last interview, I think is something that is worth talking about because Earl Warren certainly had, because of his role as Chief Justice, the reputation of being a liberal. However, he was the Republican vice presidential candidate in the 1948 election, along with Tom Dewey, who was the presidential candidate. The campaign manager for that campaign, his official title was uh, speechwriter, was none other than Alan Dulles, arguably (laughs) the most important member of the Warren Commission. And Something that I think really resonates with our public's conditioning, the cognitive shaping by television, and that is uh, Jack Ruby's testimony to the Warren Commission on June 7th, 1964. And I'd like to play, uh, by way of wrapping up this long series, a reading of that. Maybe we should also note that Earl Warren was the Republican governor of California when Japanese Americans were herded into internment camps. And something that did was to uh, liquidate a lot of the wealth of the very significant Nisei, a.k.a. Uh, Japanese American agricultural middle class in California. It was something of a land grab, among other things. But when Jack Ruby was interviewed by Earl Warren. There were other people there. There was Secret Service agent Eleanor Moore, although you won't hear him uh, talked about here. 
Uh, we've spoken about him in the past and his pressure on Malcolm Perry, his discussions with Jim Goshenauer. There also was uh, Arlen Specter, who, interesting enough, was Richard Nixon's chief choice to be his attorney in Watergate. There was also Jay Lee Rankin, uh, arguably the most important Warren Commission counsel, who was the first selection by Richard Nixon to become Watergate special prosecutor. There was also, although you won't hear him speak, Leon Jaworski, who was not only a Warren Commission counsel, he did become Watergate special prosecutor. He was also, along with uh, Judge Robert Story, the chief, the, the heads of the Texas corporate inquiry looking into the assassination, ostensibly anyway, for the state of Texas. And also present there, drumroll fanfare, was Warren Commission member and later vice president under Richard Nixon and later president, Gerald Ford. And what we're going to do is to listen to my reading of the interrogation of Jack Ruby by the Warren Commission. And I think, as I said in an off-air conversation, I think only a one-cell organism could fail to grasp what's going on here. And for those people who, again, would be saying, oh, I don't think there could be a conspiracy behind JFK's assassination because Earl Warren was a liberal and he wouldn't have allowed that. Um, Well, just listen to what you are about to hear. Warren, this is another man on my staff, Mr. Spector. Would you mind if he came in? Ruby. Is there any way you can get me to Washington, Warren? I beg your pardon? Ruby, is there any way of you getting me to Washington, Warren? I don't know of any. I'll be glad to talk to your counsel about what the situation is, Mr. Ruby, when we get an opportunity to talk, and Oglesby adds in parentheses, Ruby has been intermittently begging a chance to talk to Warren alone. Bear in mind that Ruby did not trust his lawyer, Joe Tonhill, as I've indicated a couple of times. Back to the testimony. Ruby, I don't think I'll get a fair representation with my counsel, Joe Tonhill. I don't think so. I would like to request that I go to Washington and you take all the tests that I have to take. It's very important, Tonhill. Jack, will you tell him why you don't think you will get a fair representation? Ruby, because I have been over this for the longest time to get the lie detector test. Somebody's been holding it back from me. Warren. Mr. Ruby, I might say to you that the lateness of this thing is not due to your counsel. It was our own delay due to the pressures we had on us at the time. And skipping down, Ruby. Gentlemen, unless you get me to Washington, you can't get a fair shake out of me. If you understand my way of talking, you have got to bring me to Washington to get the tests. Do I sound dramatic? Off the beam, Warren. No, you were speaking very, very rationally. And I am really quite surprised that you can remember as much as you have remembered up to the present time. You've given it to us in great detail. Ruby. 
Unless you get me to Washington, and I am not a crackpot, I have all my senses, I don't want to evade any crime I'm guilty of, but Mr. Moore, have I spoken this way when we talked? Moore, yes. Ruby, unless you get me to Washington immediately, I am afraid after what Mr. Tonahill has written there, and skipping ahead, Ruby, is there any way of getting the polygraph here? Decker, that's uh, Dallas County Sheriff uh, Bill Decker. May I make a suggestion, Jack? Listen, you and I have had a lot of dealings. Do you want my officers removed from the room while you talk to the Warren Commission? Ruby, that wouldn't prove any truth. Decker, these people came several thousand miles to interview you. You have wanted to tell me your story, and I have refused to let you tell me. Now be a man with a bunch of men that have come a long way to give an opportunity to Ruby. I wish the president were here right now. It's a terrible ordeal, I tell you that. And uh, Oglesby adds in parentheses, he subsides for a moment to his pat narrative, then turns back to Decker. Bill. Will you do that for me that you asked a minute ago? You said you wanted to leave the room. By the way, I would point out uh, that Decker had refused to let Ruby testify to uh, him alone. Continuing, Decker, I will have everyone leave the room, including myself, if you want to talk about it. You name it, and out we will go, Ruby. All right, Decker. You want all of us outside? Ruby. Yes. Decker. I will leave Tonahill and Moore. I am not going to have Joe leave. Joe, of course, is Joe Tonahill, Ruby's lawyer, whom he does not trust. Ruby. If you're not going to have Joe leave, Decker. Moore, his body's responsible to you. His body is responsible to you. Bill. That's uh, our Ruby. Bill, I am not accomplishing anything if they are here and Joe Tonahill is here. You asked me anybody I wanted out. Decker. Jack, this is your attorney. That is your lawyer, Ruby. He is not my lawyer. And then uh, Oglesby adds in parentheses that uh, Decker and law enforcement officers leave the room. Ru and uh, Ruby adds, Gentlemen, if you want to hear any further testimony, you will have to get me to Washington, because it has something to do with you, Chief Warren. Do I sound sober enough to tell you this, Warren? Yes, go right ahead, Ruby. I want to tell the truth, and I can't tell it here. I can't tell it here. Does that make sense to you, Warren? Well, let's not talk about sense. But I really can't see why you can't tell this commission, Ruby. But this isn't the place for me to tell what I want to tell. Moore. The commission is looking into the entire matter, and you are part of it. Should be. Ruby. Chief Warren, your life is in danger in this city. Do you know that? Warren. No, I don't know that. If that's the thing that you don't want to talk about, you can tell me, if you wish, when this is all over, uh, just between you and me, Ruby. No, 
I would like to talk to you in private. One. You may do that when you finish your story. You may tell me that phase of it. Ruby. I bet you haven't had a witness like me in your whole investigation. Is that correct? Warren. There are many witnesses whose memory has not been as good as yours. I tell you that honestly. Ruby. My reluctance to talk. You haven't had any witness in telling the story and finding so many problems. Warren. You have a greater problem than any witness we've had. Ruby. I have a lot of reasons for having those problems. Warren. I know that. And we want to respect your rights,、uh, whatever they may be. And I only want to hear what you are willing to tell us, because I realize that you still have a great problem before you, and I am not trying to press you, Ruby. When are you going back to Washington, Warren? I'm going back shortly after we finish this hearing. I'm going to have some lunch, Ruby. Can I make a statement, Warren? Yes, Ruby. If you request me to go back to Washington with you right now, that couldn't be done, could it, Warren? No, it could not be done. It could not be done. There are a good many things involved in that, Mister Ruby. Ruby, what are they, Warren? Well, the public attention that it would attract. And the people who would be around, we have no place for you to be safe when we take you out, and we're not law enforcement officers, and it isn't our responsibility to go into anything of that kind. And certainly, it couldn't be done on a moment's notice this way, Ruby. Gentlemen, my life is in danger here. Not with my guilty plea of execution, Oglesby adds. I.e., not because of killing Oswald. Do I sound sober enough to you as I say this, Warren? You do. You sound entirely sober, Ruby. From the moment I started my testimony, have I sounded as though, with the exception of becoming emotional, haven't I sounded as though I make sense what I was talking about, Warren? You have indeed. I understand everything you have said. If I haven't, it's my fault, Ruby. Then I follow this up. I may not live tomorrow to give any further testimony. The reason why I add this to this, since you assure me that I've been speaking sense by then, I might be speaking sense by following what I've said. And the only thing I want to get out to the public. And I can't say it here is with authenticity, with sincerity of the truth of everything, and why my act was committed. But it can't be said here. It can be said. It's got to be said amongst people of the highest authority that would give me the benefit of the doubt. And following that, immediately give me the lie detector test. After I do make the statement, Chairman Warren, if you felt that your life was in danger at the moment, how would you feel? Wouldn't you be reluctant to go on speaking, even though you request me to do so, Warren? 
I think I might have some reluctance if I was in your position. Yes, I think I would. I think I would figure it out very carefully as to whether it would endanger me or not. If you think that anything that I am doing or anything that I am asking you is endangering you in any way, shape, or form, I want you to feel absolutely free to say that the interview is over. Ruby. What happens then? I don't accomplish anything. Warren. No, nothing's been accomplished. Ruby. Well, then you won't follow up with anything further. Warren. There wouldn't be anything to follow up if you hadn't completed your statement. Ruby. You said you have the power to do what you want to do. Is that correct? Warren. Exactly. Ruby. Without any limitations? Warren. Within the purview of the executive order which established the commission. Ruby. But you don't have a right to take a prisoner back with you when you want to? Warren. No. We have the power to subpoena witnesses to Washington if we want to do it. But we've taken the testimony of two or three hundred people, I would imagine, here in Dallas without going to Washington. Ruby. Yes, but those people aren't Jack Ruby. Warren. No, they weren't. Ruby. They weren't. Warren. Now, I want you to feel that we are not here to take any advantage of you, because I know that you were in a delicate position, and unless you had indicated not only through your lawyers, but also through your sister, who wrote a letter addressed either to me or to Mr. Rankin, saying that you wanted to testify before the commission, unless she had told us that, I wouldn't have bothered you, Ruby. The thing is, that with your power that you have, Chief Justice Warren, and all these gentlemen, too much time has gone by for me to give you any benefit of what I may say now. And still later, the Rankin here, by the way, is J. Lee Rankin of Warren Commission Counsel. Rankin, it isn't entirely clear how you feel that your family and you yourself are threatened by your killing what... Uh, beginning again... It isn't entirely clear how you feel that your family and you yourself are threatened by your telling what you have to the commission. How do you come to the conclusion that they might be killed? Will you tell us a little bit more about that, if you can, Ruby? Well, assuming that, as I stated before, some persons are accusing me, falsely, of being part of the plot, naturally... In all the time from over six months ago, my family has been so interested in helping me, Rankin. By that you mean a party to the plot of Oswald, Ruby, that I was a party to a plot to silence Oswald, and skipping down, Warren. Mr. Ruby, I think you are entitled to a statement to this effect, because you have been frank with us and have told us your story. I think I can say to you that there has been no witness before this commission out of the hundreds we have questioned who has claimed to have any personal knowledge that you were a party to any conspiracy to kill our president, Ruby. Yes, but you don't know this area here, Warren. Well, I will make this additional statement to you. 
that if any witness should testify before the commission that you were, to their knowledge, a party to any conspiracy to assassinate the president, I assure you that we will give you the opportunity to deny it and to take any tests that you may desire to so disprove it. Skipping down. Ruby. And I wish that our beloved president, Lyndon Johnson, would have dealt deeper into the situation, hear me, not to accept just circumstantial facts about my guilt or innocence, and would have questioned to find out the truth about me before he relinquished certain powers to these certain people. Consequently, a whole new form of government is going to take over our country, and I know I won't live to see you another time. Do I sound sort of screwy in telling you these things, Warren? No, I think that is what you believe, or you wouldn't tell it under oath. Ruby, but it is a very serious situation. I guess it's too late to stop it, isn't it? And skipping down, next you'll hear from Gerald Ford, Warren Commission member, who, as I've said a couple of times, was already, uh, who, I should say, was named by Richard Nixon to replace Spiro Agnew as vice president. Later, he succeeded Nixon as president and parted Nixon of all crimes that he may have committed. Ford, are there any questions that ought to be asked to help clarify the situation that you described? Ruby, there is only one thing. If you don't take me to Washington tonight to give me a chance to prove to the president that I am not guilty, then you will see the most tragic then you will see the most tragic thing that will ever happen. And still later, Ruby. Now maybe something can be saved. It may not be too late. Whatever happens if our president, Lyndon Johnson, knew the truth from me. But if I am eliminated, there won't be any way of knowing. Right now, when I leave your presence now, I am the only one can, that can bring out the truth to our president who believes in righteousness and justice. But he's been told, I am certain, that I was part of a plot to assassinate the president. I know, your hands are tied, you're helpless, Warren. Mr. Ruby, I think I can say this to you, that if he has been told any such thing, there is no indication of any kind that he believes it. Ruby, I am sorry, Chief Justice Warren. I thought I would be very effective in telling you what I have said here. But in all fairness to everyone, maybe all I want to do is beg that if they found out I was telling the truth, maybe they can succeed in what their motives are, but maybe my people won't be tortured and mutilated. And skipping down, Warren. Well, you may be sure that my president and his whole commission will do anything that is necessary to see that your people are not tortured. Ruby, no. Warren, you may be sure of that. Ruby, no. The only way you can do it is if he knows the truth, that I'm telling the truth, and why I was down in that basement Sunday morning, and maybe some sense of decency will come out, and they can still fulfill their plan, as I stated before, without my people going through torture and mutilation. Warren, the President will know everything that you have said. Everything that you have said. Ruby. But I won't be around, Chief Justice. 
I won't be around to verify those things that you are going to tell the president. Tonahill, who never left the room. Who do you think is going to eliminate you, Jack? Ruby. I have been used for a purpose, and there will be a certain tragic occurrence happening if you don't take my testimony and somehow vindicate me so my people don't suffer because of what I've done, Ruby. But we have taken your testimony. We have it here. It will be in permanent form for the President of the United States and for the Congress of the United States and for the course of the United States and for the people of the entire world. It is there. It will be recorded for all to see. That is the purpose of our coming here today. We feel that you're entitled to have your story told. Ruby. You have lost me, though. You have lost me, Chief Justice Warren. Warren. Lost you? In what sense? Ruby. I won't be around for you to come and question again, Warren. Well, it is very hard for me to believe that. I am sure that everybody would want to protect you to the very limit, Ruby. All I want is a lie detector test, and you refuse to give it to me. Because as it stands now in the truth serum and any other pentothal, how do you pronounce it, whatever it is, and they will not give it to me because I want to tell the truth, and then I want to leave this world. And skipping ahead still further, Ruby. How are we going to communicate and so on, Warren? We will communicate directly with you, Ruby. You have a lost cause, Earl Warren. You don't stand a chance. They feel about you like they do about me, Chief Justice Warren. I shouldn't hurt your feelings in telling you that. That again, Jack Ruby's testimony before the Warren Commission from Volume 5, pages 181 through 212 of the 26, volume Warren, 26 volumes of Warren Commission testimony and exhibits. And in turn, that was reprinted from Carl Oglesby's The Yankee and Cowboy War from 1976. Lisa and Jim, any comments on that? Well, Jack Ruby was a heck of an interesting guy, wasn't he? Yeah, and 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 um, it really seems like he really wanted to get out of Dallas. Okay, for whatever reason, Warren wouldn't countenance it. It's it's it's, it's a really really weird situation, you know. Um, what happened is that they did give him a polygraph test. That's one of the things that he requested. And the FBI did a cover-up job on the test because when the House Select Committee found the test, they concluded that the test had been rigged by the FBI. All right? And that Ruby did tell some deceptions. And one of the deceptions he told, okay, that they think that they can tell through the uh, readings on the, uh, the I think it's it's the... Uh, the skin galvanization test is something like, you know, did you know Lee Harvey Oswald or something like that? And the, and the thing registered as being deceptive. So, you know, the, the, the cover up about Jack Ruby, you know, is almost as bad as a cover up about Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, I don't think there's any question about it. 
And I, I believe the reason I think it was covered up is because on the one hand you have Oswald, intelligence ties written all over him, Ruby, mob ties. So the combination, of course, the CIA mafia. And uh, Ruby himself had been doing some uh, gun bombing activity with people like Lewis McWillie and yes. others. Uh, something we brought up earlier, Lisa, was that uh, Lewis Jolyon West. One oh, of the I agencies, was just going to mention him, yes. <laughs> he went in and he scrambled Ruby's eggs real good, developed yes. that for us. Yes, in fact, in my own book, I, I quote a lawyer who wrote to Ruby's lawyer, who was Melvin Belli, a famous you know, big name attorney of the time. And this other lawyer, I, I forget his name, but I think it was Leonard Weissman, but I'd have to go check. But he wrote and said, you know, the talk that Jack Ruby had brain damage, which was one of the excuses. He goes, that's not true. Jack Ruby was completely hypnotized. He's like, that's not a supposition or a theory. That's a fact. And this lawyer was talking like he really knew what he was talking about. And, um, all right. Uh, I was going to save something for another talk, but I'm going to share it here now because since we're at that point. Oh, maybe I'll save it. Okay, for another time. Okay. (laughs) But anyway, uh, Julian West was an MK Ultra mind control guy. Uh, That ties to so many people in this. And, yeah, there's there's so much to say. But they obviously, Ruby knew more than he was able to tell. He was, and he was trying to tell it. Uh, In your book about the assassination of Robert Kennedy, uh, to make a very long story very short, it was not Saran Saran who uh, fired the shots, but Saran Saran himself was quite obviously a victim of mind control. And one of the really important aspects of the investigation into Robert Kennedy's assassination. And we will uh, set this forth at a uh, consumable length when we go into a lot too big to fail, is that Saran, like Jack Ruby, was a victim of mind control. And, you know, that, that is a huge development. And it's something the so-called progressive sector won't touch, as will the, as won't the, uh, or will not the mainstream press. Right. And you know, what's so interesting is that the Congress, they did, the mind control came out during the Rockefeller Commission. Congress actually held a separate MK Ultra investigation. And one of the members of that was Ted Kennedy, brother to JFK and RFK. I think he had a very personal interest in that particular development. So, uh, I always thought that was fascinating. But yeah, these, it's like the threads lead everywhere. And I do think the assassinations of the sixties, you know, JFK, MLK, RFK, they have many connective tissues between them. And mind control is, is a thread. In fact, you know, there was a guy, who said David Ferry was hypnotizing Oswald. Entirely possible. David Ferry was known to do that. And, you know, there's a document I quote in my book that talks about a Marine who was sent to the Soviet Union, but hypnotized to act like a communist. But outside of hypnosis, he was like a red-blooded American who would report on everything. And they had fragmented his mind such that 
one part would only know the communist self, but the other part would remember everything from the communist self. We be able to all out the time. <laughs> okay. We, we will go into this uh, at greater length yeah. when we get into your book and future interviews. However, we are out of time. I'm going to uh, recommend to people that they pursue uh, in order, first of all, Lisa Peace's book, uh, A Lot Too Big to Fail, about the assassination of Robert Kennedy, uh, the book JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass by Jim Biagenio, uh, Destiny Betrayed by Jim Biagenio, Kennedy'sandKing.com, which features a massive amount of information, and also, uh, Black Op Radio, on which Jim is a regular so this wraps up our long series. Jim, we've broken the record 27 programs. Wow. And this concludes <laughs> interview number 27 with Jim Eugenio and Lisa Peace about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on February 10th of the year 2023. For Jim Eugenio and Lisa Peace, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening. <laughs>